Hey, Merry Christmas, New Life Church. Do you feel merry this morning? <laughs> My hope is that when you leave here, you will feel merrier than when you entered. And I believe that'll be the case because God has a good word for you this morning. I believe that. I'm excited to share that with you. But I do want to welcome you here. It's good to be here. We don't take this opportunity for granted. We have no idea what it's going to look like next week. We're just going to use God's wisdom to figure that out. But we're here. We're here to worship our great God together, to celebrate together. And um, we thank Him for that. And I know I've seen some larger families here from out of town that have gathered already for a family Christmas. So if that's you, welcome here. And uh, maybe some others of you that are here for the first time ever, maybe the first time in a long time, and uh, it was just in your heart this morning to come here, and I'm glad you did. I don't know that anyone traveled here uh, from a further distance than Martin Chama from Kisumu, Kenya, and uh, welcome, Martin. I want you to come down here. Come on, come on down, Martin. He's hiding up in the balcony. No, 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 you got to walk over there, down the stairs. And come here, and I'm going to try to fill that time with a joke or two, or uh, no, but I will just tell you, some of you know Martin well, uh, some of you will uh, have no idea who he is or who, what Bethel Rays of Hope ministry is. It's a ministry uh, that runs a school and an orphanage in Kasumu, Kenya, that our church is integrally involved in, and Martin and his family are just at the, at the I guess, center of running that ministry, and Martin has traveled here for a few weeks uh, to visit us all the way from Kenya. And uh, welcome to our fair land, Martin. Come on up here. Just pull that down so we can actually see what you look like. There, that's Martin, everybody. That's Martin. We'll stay six feet apart. And um, welcome here, brother. It's good to have you back. I think the last time you were here, I remember five and a half years ago, I was candidating in this church. And your family was here, and you're having some sort of Bethel 5K run, and I thought, what is this place? And I had the privilege of visiting um, about four and a half years ago, visiting uh, the ministry there, and we're so glad that you're here. You've gone through a lot of adversity. If you don't know, the, uh, Martin lost his wife, Edith, to COVID um, a few months back. And I want you to know that you have been in our, our prayers and in our thoughts. We've been lifting you up. And um, we're glad that you're with us here to visit your son, Joski. And um, Martin was on January 2nd, and maybe still will, but on that Sunday, he was going to take some time in the service um, to just share with us the ministry. And I don't know what's going to happen January 2nd. So we're not sure how he's going to have that opportunity to do that, but we'll make sure that uh, he has that opportunity just to share with us what God is doing there at with Bethel and how we can continue to be a part of that. Um, so... I'm not going to ask anything of you right now, but can I just say a quick prayer over you and over us as we go into this message? God, we just thank you uh, for this day, this day that you have made, that we can come together as your people to be reminded of all that you are for us this day and every day, to be reminded that it doesn't matter what's happening out in the world, Lord, you stand over all of that and you are at work for our good, Lord, even in, in the things that we can't understand, Lord, when we experience great loss, the loss of a spouse, um, all, all these COVID challenges, Lord, you are still on the throne of the world. We thank you for that. You are with us. You care about us. You desire to speak into our lives today. God, would you speak to us? We have ears to hear. We open our, our hearts. We open our minds to receive what you have for us. 
and to put that into practice. I pray your blessing on Martin over these weeks here as he gets to reconnect with Joski, as he gets to uh, just uh, interact with supporters. Lord, I just pray that you would give him great opportunity for fellowship and uh, opportunities just to further your work um, there in Kenya. And so may this just be a few weeks of wonderful blessing for him here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So, I was going to preach a sermon this Sunday called, No Ear May Hear. If you've been tracking what we've been doing the last few weeks, you know that we're in this series we've called The Carols of Christmas, where each week we're taking a different carol, common carol, but we're finding within it like a powerful few words that lead us into deeper insight into the significance of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And uh, so I've had a lot of fun just digging into these carols, and this Sunday we just sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which said, silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, no ear may hear His coming. And I was going to talk about that, and I, w- I was pretty excited. I-, I was further along in my week in the sermon writing process than usual. By late Friday afternoon, I was half done. I was feeling pretty good. But that's a sermon that I'm going to save for next week in whatever capacity that happens because, um, yeah, I was standing at RBC in the line waiting to see a teller Friday around 4 o'clock, pulled out my phone to discover that uh, Rusin, there was this new press conference and I went and I sat in my car and I listened to the new round of restrictions that were being announced that I'm sure you're well aware of. And to be honest, I just kind of, what do I say? I, I, I felt discouraged. I don't know about you, but I've felt like I've just been hanging on. And can we do this again? All these plans that, that we have made here at the church for Christmas season uh, that we were so excited about, now in one fell swoop might all have to be reworked and might be undone. And I was sitting there feeling kind of demoralized, a little anxious. Um, having a pity party. I don't know how you felt. Why is this happening again? In God's mercy, uh, He gave me a wife who is a professional counselor. (laughs) And the best part is she only charges me half price. So it's (laughs) it's great. So my wife uh, just kind of helped me through some of my emotions I sat in this space with Daniel for a few hours yesterday morning just talking about what now. You know, the unexpected has happened again. How many times have we had our plans undone? How many times have we felt frustrated? Have we felt just at the mercy of all these forces that are outside of our control and felt anxious or angry or disappointed because of that. Something that was totally unexpected that just kind of threw us off, threw us for a loop, creates all sorts of challenges. And I kind of feel even bad to express that because I know there's people battling for their lives in the hospital right now. It's easy to get disheartened. It's easy to get anxious. It's easy to get cynical. I felt the pull in all those directions. And so I just felt as I was processing kind of this change I guess I just felt God saying, Rusty, this sermon you're 
going to preach? Yeah, I don't want you to preach that, not this Sunday. This, it doesn't really, it's not what you need, Rusty. That's not what the people need. And I felt God just asking me to look into the Christmas story and to find something different, something that maybe is, is more related to what we need to hear this morning. As I was thinking about the Christmas story, the word unexpected kept coming to my mind. We've lived in this season of uncertainty where the unexpected has happened time and time again. And I was, I was kind of meditating on the Christmas story and just realizing how unexpected this story is in so many different ways. And so this morning, I just kind of want to look at the unexpected nature of the story because I think God is going to speak into our situation, into our lives through it this morning. The story begins, our story, the story you know well, the Christmas story begins in Luke chapter 1. Well, let's begin there. It's really the story of a young girl named Mary. Now, we don't know much about Mary. We just know that she was a very ordinary teenage girl, maybe 15 years of age. That would have been about the normal time a girl might be engaged. And I'm thinking, man, that's... That's my oldest daughter. She just turned 15 this last week. And she said to me, Dad, this is the year I get to drive. And I said, Lord Jesus, have mercy. I mean, nothing causes you to increase your prayer life like a kid that's learning to drive. Oh, man, how we got here already. And I was thinking, Mary is like Annika, that age. Um, this is how the story begins. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So again, we don't know a lot about this gal, but we know she was engaged. Here was a young girl whose whole life was coming together. All these dreams were about to become a reality. I don't know if they had like those wedding magazines back in the day, right? But certainly Mary would have just kind of dreamed of the day where she would meet, you know, Prince Charming, would sweep her off her feet and they'd live happily ever after and she'd have a family and she had it all planned out and it was coming to pass. She was engaged to this Joseph. Who knows what she was doing on this day? Like maybe she was making the wedding invite list or or putting together those like crafty little centerpieces for the wedding. But something unexpected happened. Verse 28, an angel came, the angel Gabriel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. I don't know, like he, maybe you thought, I'd, I'd love to see an angel. Would you? I don't know. Like, if an angel shows up in your life, you know what that means? Something's going to change. Like, whatever thought you thought you were going to do that evening, you're not doing that anymore. Like, life is going to change. And, 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 and she was sensing that because she was troubled. And it says she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. That word there, wondered, literally means to make an audit. She's assessing, uh-oh, Something is happening here that's going to have huge ramifications on my life. What does this mean? 
The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now she's going to have to uh, be reminded again and again that she has, she'll have to know that, that she has found favor with God because there are some things that are going to happen to her that will cause her to feel like God has not been favorable towards her. Maybe even God has forsaken her. What is the angel going to say? Well, listen to these words. And, and just hear all the times that you hear the word will. Will, will, will. Listen for that word. The angel says in verse 31, Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. And how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? I mean, they weren't stupid. She knew babies didn't come from storks. How is this going to work? Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So Mary, this is what's going to happen. And you notice that like there's no consultation, there's no asking. Okay, I got an idea, I just want to throw it out there. What do you think of this? She wasn't asked, wasn't consulted, she was told, this is what's going to happen to you. What was she thinking? I mean, try to put yourself in her spot, right? In that day, that culture, all of a sudden, this, there's this a pregnant girl who is unmarried. I'm sure she's thinking about all the ramifications. What is Joseph going to think? What are others going to think? What's going to happen to me? The law says that an adulterer is supposed to be stoned. And if, and if you read the story in Mark chapter 1, you know that when Joseph found out she was pregnant before they had married, being an honorable man, he, he, he said that he was going to quietly, he wasn't going to publicize her disgrace before the whole community for her to be shunned or maybe worse, but he was just going to quietly divorce her. Try to put yourself in her shoes. I'm sure her mind is racing with all the ramifications for what this might mean for her life. How does she respond? Well, verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. She didn't negotiate. She didn't protest. She just surrendered to the will of God. So, Joseph almost left her, but an angel visited him too, brought him into the loop and said, no, you are to marry. You're going to have a son. You're going to call him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and for, for he will save his people from their sins. And so they get married and this baby grows and 
Mary's belly, and as time goes on, you know, things even out. They get settled. They start to get excited about what's going to happen. Maybe she's starting to decorate the nursery, or nursery, painting it blue, just getting everything ready. This day is approaching, and then it happens. The unexpected happens. At the most inopportune time, the government issues a mandate. That changes everything for her. Luke chapter 2, verses 1, this is what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Caesar Augustus, ruler of the Roman Empire, under which Mary and Joseph and all around them were subjects, makes this decree. He mandates everyone at this time has to travel to their ancestral town to be counted in a census. And I'm sure when they heard that, they thought, I wonder, let's go, to, let's go to the website, let's just see if there's exemptions for highly pregnant people. So they went to the website, oh my goodness, there's no exemptions for like people in their ninth month. We have to make this journey, we have no choice. And so can you just imagine, at the most inopportune time, here they are, Mary and Joseph, she's heavily pregnant, making this arduous journey 120 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. How? Donkey? I don't know. Maybe walking? A long trip in those days. And what we see here is just kind of this, almost this power imbalance. They were just at the mercy of the forces around them. They didn't really have a voice. They didn't even so much have a say. They were just at the mercy of the forces around them. Like Caesar Augustus, he just did what, you know, he, in that time he could do, he wanted to do. The, in fact, the word Augustus, literally in the Latin, that wasn't like a name he was born with. That was a title that he had the Roman Senate bestow upon him, which in Latin, Augustus means the great one. He probably wore like a jersey with 99 on the back, Right? It meant majestic, Caesar the Majestic. This man of great power, and he makes this decree, and so they go. And you know the rest of the story. There was no room for them in the inn, and the baby's born and in a manger, and all of it's terrible, seemingly. Certainly unexpected. But you know what? What Mary didn't know and what Caesar didn't know is what God was doing in that. That this was all a part of God's plan to get Mary and Joseph and the Savior that was coming into the world from Nazareth in the north of Israel to the place where he needed to be born. Where in Micah 5 it says, For Out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the smallest of the clans of Judah, out of you one will come who will be the ruler of all peoples, who will be our peace. And so God is at work behind the scenes to get Mary and Joseph and Jesus to Bethlehem. And how does he use it? He puts into the mind of the most, seemingly the most powerful being in the universe, Caesar Augustus, to issue a decree. Why? To get these two little nobodies, and they're, supposed, they're seemingly nobody little baby, to Bethlehem. Is that remarkable? Now, they didn't know that was happening. This was, just, this was just something that was unexpected and hard. But what we're supposed to see in this story is that 
All the mammoth forces of the world, even without knowing it, are being used by God for the sake of His people. For the sake of bringing about His good purposes in the world and in the lives of those who trust in His Son. That's what He's doing. That's what He was doing then, and that's what He's doing today. And that's what He does every day. And so I thought of these words from the second Psalm. Psalm 2, verses uh, verses 1 to 4, which says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. He's saying, he's talking about all the powers of the earth think that, think that their power is omnipotent. They can do whatever they want. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> Because he will bring about his purposes and nothing will stop him. And he will even use all of these powers to do it. He will use Caesar, Augustus, and a decree for a census to get this little family to Bethlehem. You know, I can only imagine that Mary in the moment thought that she was a victim. Why me, God? This is terrible. This couldn't be any worse. Why is this happening? What she didn't know is that God was at work to make her a victor. She wasn't a victim. God was working for her victory. Now, she didn't see it at the time. She would only see it in time. And years later, she would be standing at the base, about 33 years later, at the base of a Roman cross, and she would see her son Jesus hung on it, dying, and I'm sure she just felt like absolutely confused. He was to be the Savior. He was our hope. And now it ends with this. I don't understand. God, have you forsaken me? Have you forsaken us? Where is your favor, God? He's dying on the cross. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. I'm sure that's what she's thinking. And Jesus breathed his last and he died and all of the, Mary and all those other first disciples, they just thought, this is game over. Their hopes, their dreams, it had all been dashed. And they went back to their homes and we find in the Gospel of John that many of them, they went into hiding in the home, they locked the door, they turned off the lights because they might be the next ones arrested, imprisoned, maybe crucified themselves. And so they were full of fear and only later, later did they see what was actually happening. Only later did they see that when they thought they were victims, God was making them victors. When they thought that everything was completely out of control, it was completely in God's control. When they thought God had abandoned them, God was doing His best work for them. He was saving them. And they only saw that later. When Jesus rose from the dead and they understood and they connected the dots to see what, how God was at work in all these unexpected things. And it totally changed their mindset. It totally changed their spirit, the way they approached 
the things that they faced. And so they would say this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. These are some of those first disciples praying, and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God. They did what your power, they that is the powers of the world, rulers and authorities, they did what your power, God, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Here we thought it was all out of control. It was actually completely in your control. You were fulfilling your plan. We see that now. And you know, we see God do that over and over again in the Scriptures. How He, how he demolishes our plans and does something different and unexpected. How He works through the unexpected for the good of His people. Over and over again, right? If you know the story of Joseph, way near the beginning of the Bible, his, his older sons are envious of him, and so they beat him up, they throw him in a pit. They, they convince their father that he's dead, and then they sell him off to slavery, and he's brought to Egypt as a slave, and then he's, false, he's convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and he finds himself wallowing in prison. But it was there in prison where, where he had an encounter that brought him into the very power circle of Pharaoh and enabled him to save his entire family. Salvation would have never happened without the pit. Salvation would have never happened without the prison. But I wonder what he thought about when he was wallowing there, thinking he was a victim, when actually God was making him a victor. Or the, or the, the people of Israel, when they left Egypt to head to the promised land, the Bible tells us that they were going to take the easy route, the big, the wide route that went straight there, but God changed their path and, and pinned them up right against the Red Sea in the worst possible place with Pharaoh's army bearing down for them. God, what are you doing? Have you forsaken us? But God had them right where he wanted them. And through that, God destroyed the entire army of Pharaoh, everything that stood against them and liberated his people brought them through the sea. Or, or in, in that first church, we see how God works through the unexpected. Right, Jesus' final words to His disciples were, hey, I'm going up to heaven, but I'm giving you my mission, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit whose power will rest on you, and you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's your mission, you bunch of normal people, you bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. To the ends of the earth, I tell you. And they were maybe strategizing, oh my goodness, we haven't even graduated grade seven to the ends of the earth. Oh boy, let's, let's, let's make the plan. Where do we go next? What do we do? A few chapters later, Acts chapter eight, a great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem where they're all still huddled and it scatters them throughout Judea and Samaria where they go along the way sharing the good news of Jesus and churches are born and Christians are made along the way. And Philip in Acts chapter 8 comes upon this Ethiopian man who's headed back to Ethiopia. And maybe you know the story of this divine encounter. And he shares the good news of Jesus with this Ethiopian man who puts his faith in him. And he goes back to Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian church, which was the ends of the world at that time, was born. And it happened in a way they never planned or expected. Because that's how God works. When they thought they were 
victims. God was working their victory, making them victors. And that doesn't mean that God's plans are easy or painless, obviously. It doesn't work that way. I remember um, The Chronicles of Narnia, a book series many of you have read, watched the movies. In that, in that series, Aslan, the main character, is a big lion that represents, he's the figure of Christ. Um, and and in, in this series of books, there's a saying that says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And in this story, there's these characters, this Young, or this couple, they're beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, very cleverly named. Mrs. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan, before Christ, without their knees knocking, they're either braver than me or just silly. And this young girl, this character, Lucy, says, then he isn't safe, this Aslan? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. Of course he'll lead you to dangerous places. Of course it won't be easy. Of course there'll be pain along the way. But he's good. And all he does, he is working, and all he allows, he is working for the good of his people. And that would cause Paul to say in Acts 8.28, in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And so as I was meditating on, on all of this kind of Friday, as I was reeling a little bit Friday and then Saturday, I thought, yeah. I mean, what the, what, one of the things the Christmas story shows us is that God is at work when everything seems lost. God is at work when all seems out of control. Maybe God is especially at work when our plans are undone or our dreams are shattered. And, and, and if there is a point to this message, and I know you're hoping there is, and that I'll get to it soon, let me just put it up on the screen as I've kind of distilled this. Here's, here's what I take from this. You know, that perfect faith is not faith that moves God. You know, to get on our agenda, to fulfill our plan, to realize our dream. Perfect faith is not faith that moves God, but faith that moves us to trust in God when He doesn't seem to be moving. When you look around you and go, I don't see where you are, God. I don't see how any of this can come for good. I don't see how I'm going to make it through this. Where are you and what are you doing? This doesn't really seem to align with what I thought or what you said over there. Perfect faith moves us to trust in God when in the moment we don't see Him moving. It isn't about getting God to bless our plan. It's trusting that He is at work bringing about His good plan, and sometimes His good plans begin where ours end. Where ours die, His begin. And you don't necessarily see that in the moment. You don't see it or you don't understand it. Mary certainly didn't see or understand when the angel came to her, when all of a sudden there was this decree and she had to go to Bethlehem when she got there and there was no room in the inn and then they had to go to Egypt and they had to be refugees for a series of years and then she looked up at the cross and she saw her son die. She didn't understand any of it. Perfect faith is not faith that moves God but moves us to trust Him when He doesn't seem to be moving. And I know last week I told you about that story of, of our trip. The Hildebrand family to Arizona, they got thwarted, Right? 
Most of you, you probably heard that, the two-week trip I meticulously planned for a year. And then as we left home that Wednesday in mid-November to drive to the States 10 minutes before the border, we got a call that my brother-in-law, whose family was traveling with us on this trip, just tested positive with COVID. Really? A year and a half he could have got COVID? And he gets it 10 minutes before we go on our trip? Come on, Mark. Come on, God. And so, I mean, you maybe know the story, right? In that moment, we had to pull the plug. That was hard. And we had to turn west. We went to Alberta, tried to cobble together a trip for, for a week and a half. Saw my family. I mean, no beautiful hikes in the mountains, no, no sun and warmth, no lounging by the pool outside, no Chick-fil-A. And that stung for a while. We went to Alberta. And you know what? And I didn't share this little, this little detail, what happened there, but we had been in Alberta a few days, and um, I think some of you already know that I've developed uh, an interest in coin collecting. I've mentioned it a few times from the pulpit. I know you're sick of it. But hey, it's better than crocheting, right? Could be worse. Anyway, so I, we're, we're, I'm, I'm, God put four women in my life which makes going to the mall no fun. I hate going to the mall. Because it's all just these clothing stores. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we're going to the Medicine Hat Mall. So we're driving there, the five of us, and uh, I, I pull into the RBC parking lot, and they're like, Dad, no, Dad, no. You can't help yourself. You're an addict. We go into the RBC parking lot. I go in there to get some coins. The lady says, to, uh, we start talking, she wants to know why I'm taking out all these nickels. Don't tell anyone this, okay? <laughs> I got talking, well, I, I collect coins kind of thing I do. Oh, she, oh you know what, some people, sometimes they, they bring these coins we take, but we can't do anything with them. They're these big old like dollars, coins, you know, those Voyager dollars. So they just sit there. Would you like them? Like I'll just give them to you at face value, 13 bucks. Sure. So she handed me this bag full of these old dollars. Get into the car, get to the, get to the mall, girls hop out, I open up this little bag to see what's in there. There's two 1970 Manitoba silver dollars, not silver, but just dollars, Manitoba dollars, 1970, oh, that's pretty cool, Manitoba, I'm from Manitoba, that's cool. Anyway, I, I run into the car, we go join the family in the mall, they're, they're, they're in some girly store and I'm like, I can't do this, so I'm going to go find a sports store. So I go and I find a sports store, I'm just killing time. And I'm the only one in this sports store. There's a young gal that's working there. She says, can I help you? No, nope, just, just browsing. Okay. A moment later, she says, are you looking for like, any particular team? I said, well, I'm not looking for anything really. But if I would, it would be the Winnipeg Jets. Oh, you're a Jets fan. Yeah, I'm a Jets fan. She says, I'm a Jets fan too. She says, there's only three of us in, in the whole city that are Jets fans. <laughs> really? Just three? Okay. I'm like, how did you become a Jets fan? Well... And then she told me this story. She said that, uh, oh, I asked, are you from Manitoba? No, she's not from Manitoba. How do you become a Jets fan? Well, her grandpa was from Manitoba, and her grandpa was her best friend. She's very close with her grandpa. And you, like, you even hear the emotion, right? And uh, she's carrying some pain. Uh, my grandpa was my best friend, and uh, he died a while back. And he was from Manitoba, and he had all this Jet stuff, and he gave it to me before he died. And so in my grandpa's honor, I cheer for the Winnipeg Jets. I'm like, wow. She just kind of opened up, and uh, 
I left the store and I felt God say, you have, I just gave you half an hour ago two Manitoba dollars. Go and get one and give it to her. Okay, so I walked to the van and I got the dollar and as I'm coming back, I, I felt God say, give her the dollar, but then also tell her that she should go to a church in Medicine Hat called The Link. She should go to The Link. Okay, I know I'm a pastor, but I don't do this sort of thing very often. But I just had the sense. Anyway, I walk in there, I give her this dollar, she's touched, you know, uh, you know it's kind of meaningful, that makes me feel good. But I chicken out on the second part, I walk out. And I go and I find the girls, but Annika's had enough of shopping too, she's got a little bit of her dad in her. And, um, and the, the other girls aren't quite done yet, so she just wants to go with me somewhere else. And I said, come with me, we, I have something I need to do. So for the third time, I walked back into the place, and I found the girl, still no one else in the store. And I said, you know what? I, this might sound kind of weird, but I felt like God wanted me to do two things. He wanted me to give you that Manitoba dollar, and he wanted me to tell you to go to the Link Church. And as soon as I said that, this look on her face, and she just welled up with emotion. She said, um, this is like a stranger, right? She said, I got married a year ago, and it's been a really hard year. And me and my husband, we've been looking for a church, but we couldn't find a church that had young families like us. And so we gave up. We stopped looking for a church. I said, well, obviously God is speaking to you. So go. So here, you're supposed to go to this church. She pulled out her phone. What was the name of it? And, I, and this is my sister's name. When you get there, you ask for her so-and-so. That's my sister. She'll help you. What's your name? How do you spell it? So I don't know what came of that. I have no idea. But I left there still feeling the sting of that loss of that trip to Arizona, and I thought, God, is that why I'm here? Like, did, did you change my direction and just for that? And if that's true, am I okay with that? Am I okay with exchanging some hours in the sun by the pool with that? Have you ever experienced something that was, in the moment, was kind of painful or, or, or seemingly purposeless, only, only with time later to look back at it and see how God was actually at work in it? How what He did for you was actually better than what you were begging Him to do for you? What He gave you was better than what He took from you? Can you think of some time in your life where that was true, but only with time you could see that? I mean, if God had given me everything I thought I needed or what was best for me, I wouldn't be in Stonewall. Not because he forced me here. I wanted to come here, but it's because I would have been somewhere else first. Right? Had God not closed doors. I'm so glad I'm here. I don't know what you think. <laughs> that there's a bit of an opportunity there to jump in if you <laughs> now I feel terrible that was a pity clap if there ever was one <laughs> absolutely terrible so with these COVID restrictions you know as, as I was kind of sorting through what I was feeling feeling at the end of my rope feeling anxious can I do this why is this happening you know I've looked at the Christmas story and I've been reminded that I don't know what the future holds but I know who holds the future and you've probably heard that before we need to hear it again. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. He is the God who works in the unexpected ways. 
And so, Rusty, I, Rusty, stop feeling yourself as a victim. You're not a victim. You're a victor in Jesus. God is working all this out for your victory. And is it hard? Yeah. Does it involve pain? Yeah. But you're not a victim. Not in Christ. Mm. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you today, you're kind of feeling like you're the victim. Maybe you need to look at things differently. And even if you don't understand how God is at work, just to trust that God is at work, working things for your good, so that you may be a victor. So think of your life. Do you find yourself in a situation where any of your plans have come undone, where the unexpected has happened, where some of your dreams or your hopes have just kind of been dashed? Maybe it's some relationship that has changed. You know, maybe some financial situation. Maybe it's some work situation. Who knows what it could be? Maybe it's a health situation. Could be anything. But, you know, do you find yourself in a situation right now, whether big or small, where something unexpected has happened? You face some uncertainty. It's not going the way that you had wanted. Where you feel like you're just at the mercy of forces outside of your control and you can't see how anything good or redeemable could come out of this. I want you to think on that. And then I want you to know that when our plans come to an end, God's plan is just beginning. That's at least in part what the Christmas story means. And so this is the question that God asks of all of us. It's this question, son, daughter, church, are you willing to trust me in anything I send or allow into your life, whether you understand it or not? Are you willing to trust me in anything I send or allow into your life, whether you understand how it is good or not? That's a question each of us has to answer. I mean, we're each kind of like Mary, where we have to choose. Are we going to say, are we going to negotiate, are we going to protest? Or are we going to say like Mary did, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. May you fulfill your will. Faith is not a negotiation. Faith is a total surrender to God, to His ways, to His purposes, which are higher than our ways. And so this morning, is there anything, I don't know, rattling around in your life that you feel you just need to surrender? It might be related to all this COVID stuff might be something totally different. Is there anything that you need to surrender in faith, uh, trusting in God, into His control? Because Christmas reminds us that God is working in unexpected ways. Maybe in time we'll see, but we don't need to see now to know that God is working in unexpected ways. He will bring beauty out of ashes for those who trust in Him. So the point again, one last time before we pray, perfect faith is not faith that moves God, but it's faith that moves us to trust in God when He doesn't seem to be moving. Let's pray together. Bow your head, and I just want to give you a moment, just you and God, um, 
if there's anything in your life that you just need to surrender to Him, if there's any area of your life where you just need to say, God, in this, I am your servant. May your will be done. I release this to you. I just want to give you a moment to do that. Just talk to God. Father, I I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak into each of our lives, into each of our homes. Lord, you know exactly what we're going through. You know the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know our anxious thoughts. You know all of our hopes and all of our dreams. And we know you. Because of your son Jesus who has come into the world the way he did, we know that you are a God who works in unexpected ways. You are at work when we don't see you at work. And so God, with, with these new restrictions and all that means for us as a church and in all other areas of our life, we just say we are your servants. We will trust in you. We will trust that you are at work. We will trust that even though we might feel like we are victims in different circumstances, that in fact we are victors through your Son and that you are working all things for our good. Lord, would you just keep our minds fixed on you, on that reality? May we go through this Christmas season with that sort of faith that brings us this transcending peace that we have in any and all circumstances. Lord, as we um, close this time together as one church by singing with one voice this last song, um, we're just going to declare that we give you our offering. And as we sing that, God, what we're saying is we are offering you ourselves, our whole selves. We are surrendering ourselves to you as your servants We trust in you. All this we pray in the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And together as a church we say, amen.